Welcome to another episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults will explore some of my favorite moments from North American and European trans history. I love history because it's my favorite kind of gossip. Scandalous, sensational, and most importantly of all, not about me. Directly, anyways. The first book on trans people I ever bought shortly following my own transition was a copy of Leslie Feinberg's Transgender Warriors. Arguably the first attempt at a comprehensive transgender history book, Transgender Warriors is definitely of its time. Published in the 90s, the book is a crystallization of a common thread in trans theory at the time, promoting the idea that Trans people existed as mystics and shamans in both ancient cultures and contemporary indigenous cultures. There is, of course, some truth to this. For example, the Galais of ancient Greece and some indigenous nations' conception of two-spirit people. But... Like many white, queer, and trans people did during the 90s and today, Feinberg overreaches both in reading transness into historical figures and reading contemporary Western transness into non-Western and indigenous cultures. Still, old lady that I am, the idea that trans people have always played a role in mysticism has never left me. It's a big influence on the shape of my life and the value I find in being trans. So this week, I thought we could take a moment to look at one trans mystic and his very unconventional life in the early 20th century. Join us for the story of George Marasco, lion tamer, poet, ladies man, and stigmatic. Assigned female around 1890, young Georges Mrazek was born in Brussels to a Belgian mother and a Bohemian father. For those not up on their European history, Bohemia was a country within what are now the borders of present-day Czech. It's said that Georges exhibited psychic powers early in life and used them to dominate his parents. One of the only accounts of Georges' early life and Georges' life in general can be found in the book Physical Phenomena of Mysticism by Montague Summers. In this episode, I'll be drawing quite a bit on Summers' account of Georges' life 
So I think it's important that I give you a brief introduction to who Summers was. Montague Summers was an English poet, playwright, mystic, and at least according to his own claims, Catholic priest. Ordained as a deacon within the Church of England in 1908, his rumored interests in Satanism and inappropriate relationships with young boys prevented him from achieving higher orders. He was tried and acquitted of accusations related to his inappropriate contact with young boys, but had in 1907 published a book of poetry devoted to the subject. Leaving the Catholic Church, he converted to Catholicism and claimed to have become a Catholic priest. This is a claim that remains contentious and unproven to this day. His interests in Satanism and mysticism were part of a broad revival of interest in the occult by middle and upper class men throughout Britain during the late 19th and early 20th centuries, which would later cause the birth of new religious movements such as Thelema, Wicca, and Neopaganism. If, like me, that's a subject of fascination for you, I recommend reading the book Triumph of the Moon by British historian Ronald Hutton, which discusses this in scintillating detail. I'm giving you this preface about Montague Summers so that you'll be prepared to take his information with a grain of salt. His grasp on the facts can be quite loose at times, but unfortunately his work provides some of the only detail about Georges Marasco that survives today. Back to Georges. Summers writes that, quote, it was, as far as may be ascertained truly, said that the parents of Georges Marasco were loose living and disreputable, that they harshly drove her from home at an early age. Driven from home, Perhaps because of his supposed psychic powers, Georges joined the Van Bien Frere Circus at age 13, where he worked as a lion tamer and a femme snake, a female contortionist. It's said that Georges' skill as a lion tamer was of some renown. His lion, Brutus, had killed its previous cis male tamer, but never gave Georges any trouble. Georges was also a singer. He sang in Café Chantant, which were outdoor singing cafes that shared some characteristics with both vaudeville and cabarets, but which skirted the political content that drove cabaret acts. Georges performed at the Chat Noir and the Minerva. His involvement in circus life and the Café Chantant would later be considered evidence to discredit him. However, Montague Summers is quick to point out that, quote, it may even be in some measure praiseworthy, a young girl's gallant attempt to earn an honest livelihood under extraordinarily difficult conditions. At around age 23, Georges gave birth to a daughter, Irene Adèle Mrazek, as did other unwed people who gave birth at that time, Georges passed Irene off as his younger sister for many years. Summers again comes to Georges' defense, citing that, quote, again, it may be urged that St. Margaret of Cortona, the Franciscan ecstatica, was the unmarried mother of a son, St. Margaret, the Magdalene of Tuscany, the Lily of the Valleys, attained to heights of supreme sanctity. 
Around this time, the Great War broke out. Here, stories diverge a bit. What we know for certain is that Georges worked as a nurse at St. Gilles Prison in Brussels during the German occupation, taking care of political prisoners alongside famous English nurse Edith Cavill. Edith is famous for taking care of wounded soldiers from both the Allies and the Germans, and she also managed to run a successful spy ring out of the Red Cross Hospital during this period. Georges and Edith became close friends, and according to Paula Kane's book, Sister Thorne and Catholic Mysticism in Modern America, Edith is the one who admonished Georges to take on a more, quote, civilized name. Evidently, the bohemian name Razik was not civilized enough for the Englishwoman, so Georges came back the next day having adopted not only the surname Marasco, but also the name Georges, and began wearing male clothing exclusively. He's described by one author as, quote, looking something like a Boy Scout. What's less certain are Georges' other activities during World War I. Kane writes that Georges worked as a spy for Germany against Belgium. However, Summers says that Georges, in fact, had to twice escape execution by the Germans, quote, by a clever ruse, which I think means by dressing as a man, and later worked as a spy against the Germans for Belgium, including at least one mission following the armistice. I'm split on who to believe here, though I'm marginally more inclined to actually believe Summers since it makes little sense that the Belgian Marasco, who was close friends with Edith Cavill, head of an allied spy network, would turncoat for Germany. Toward the end of the war, Edith Cavill was executed by the Germans and Georges was heartbroken over it. Cavill would later become a saint within the Church of England and remains one of the most famous and revered nurses in modern history. Cavill's execution is what prodded American President Woodrow Wilson into joining the war. When the war was said and done, Georges returned to life as a nightclub singer, this time dressed to the nines as a man, dinner jacket and all. Zagria notes that Georges had many lady friends during this period. But all the, as Summers puts it, twittery life of perilous excitement wore down the now 30-year-old George's strength, and in 1920, George took ill. He began to waste away, became paralyzed, and lost his sight. Struggling and in a terrible condition, George became devotedly religious and decided that he wanted to make a pilgrimage to Lourdes. Lourdes had become famous in the mid-19th century following the apparition of Mary to the peasant girl Bernadette Subrius. It became a major site of Catholic pilgrimage for Marian devotees due to its miraculous healing powers. Georges felt deeply that Our Lady of Lourdes could heal him if only he could make the journey. Unfortunately, he couldn't afford it. Instead, he was told to pray to the Notre Dame de Hall, a black virgin located in the Basilica of St. Martin in Hall, 
Belgium. According to one website, quote, this Black Madonna statue was given in 1280 by St. Elizabeth of Hungary to her daughter Sophia as a gift. Sophia then placed it in the Basilica of St. Martin in Hall, Belgium. Not only was the statue revered for the miraculous healings brought about in its presence, but it also is credited with saving the city of Hall from destruction during a siege in 1580. Legend has it that the Madonna caught 32 cannonballs in her skirt during the attack. They lodged in the wall of the cathedral and are still there. This is the reason the back of her medals typically show a small stacked triangle of cannonballs. She is invoked for protection from artillery fire to this day. The gunpowder from the cannonballs are apparently what turned the statue black. Georges was in such a sickly state that he had to be carried into the basilica. But then something strange happened. Within minutes, his sight returned and his paralysis lifted. Georges declared himself the recipient of a miraculous cure at the hands of Notre Dame de Hall. His hands and feet began to bleed and wounds opened on his chest and side. Stigmata is a disputed subject, even among Catholics. Within the Catholic framework, stigmata wounds are said to appear on the hands, feet, chest, and side where Jesus is said to have been wounded during his crucifixion. It is sometimes accompanied by bloody sweat, scourge marks on the back, and wounds on the head from the crown of thorns. The wounds often appear on people who enter an ecstatic state of compassion with Christ, similar to the non-mystical phenomenon of sympathy pain or sympathy weight change, but with Christ. The wounds sometimes remain open and unclotted, supposedly without showing signs of infection. The first stigmata in Christian history is that of St. Francis of Assisi in 1224, since then, there have been many cases of stigmata, primarily among women. Generally, stigmata must be confirmed as legitimate by the church. Both church and independent investigations have revealed many stigmatics to have been faked. However, there are some cases that remain inexplicable. Upon his miraculous healing and stigmata, Summers notes, quote, it was inevitable that she should become a center of attraction, so to speak, that visitors, some out of pity, some out of curiosity, some, no doubt, in a spirit of unbiased yet scrutinizing inquiry, should flock to her little villa in the Avenue de Nayer Forest. A number, if not of disciples, at least of devoted admirers, began to gather round her. It was said on excellent authority that many conversions had been the result of her admonitions and that through her sufferings and prayers, many cures had been obtained. According to Summers, Georges was the victim of mystical substitution, which apparently means that George was believed to take the illnesses and agonies out of others and into himself in order to cure them, a power many saints are attributed. The Catholic Church investigated and deemed his stigmata and miraculous curing legitimate, and for a time they assigned a French abbe to be his director. However, this soon ended when the church forbade him receiving sacraments unless he stopped dressing as a man. Georges refused, claiming both that he was a man 
and that he was on a mission from Christ to heal people, and the church removed the Abbe and their support from him in response. Various psychologists pronounced that George was an hysteric and a mad woman, some claiming that he suffered from multiple personalities, though this seems to have just been their explanation of his gender transition. There's no evidence that he had um, separate personalities who came to the forefront at different times, for example. He began his own chapel. Summers writes, quote, Mystical substitution is a very high claim, and by the end of the year 1922, the stigmatized George Morasco was regarded by increasing numbers of pious people as a figure of something like extraordinary sanctity, one who received constant revelations from heaven, who had almost uninterrupted intercourse with the angels, one to whom a mysterious message had been entrusted by God, a message which she would announce to the world. Moreover, these individuals, who so entirely believed in her surpassing holiness, were by no means simple peasants and blind enthusiasts, but persons of high social standing, men and women of the world, as the phrase goes, not likely to be deceived, and themselves in absolutely good faith. It's worth noting that during this time period, people of all classes showed a great interest in spirituality, particularly through the practices of English and American spiritualism and the French spiritism. Following the losses of many loved ones during the war, a lot of people turned to spiritism looking for contact with those who died. It is unsurprising, then, that Georges would garner such a large following at this time. Summers goes on to write, quote, a proceeding which appears to have been by far from the least injurious to her good fame and to have seriously damaged her integrity of purpose was the fact that she systematically levied from her admirers, many of whom quite honestly believed in her claims to a mystic sanctity and eagerly swallowed her revelations and prophecies, large sums of money, and since the persons who thronged around her, hanging on her words, were for the most part cultured and very wealthy, she was soon able to quietly make up a pretty comfortable purse for herself. Perhaps overconfident, she screwed too tightly, for in the later winter of 1924, Georges Marasco was arrested on a charge of obtaining money by means of a trick— it was then that under a searching cross-examination by the magistrate, many of the incidents in her life were brought to light. An extraordinary hubbub ensued, for she was still supported by the majority of her clientele, who obstinately refused to believe her guilt, whilst others, in anger at having been so gulled, as they declared, turned round to assail her with boundless rancor and heaped upon her virulent abuse, which mere decency, not to mention Christian charity, would have refrained from hurling at an unfortunate, blameworthy though she must have been. A newspaper in Brussels ran the headline, Georges Marasco is a Fool, with an article that had several experts declare Georges a fraud and a schizophrenic. The newspaper called for him to be placed in an asylum, and shortly thereafter, Georges was forced into an asylum near Mons. Inside the asylum, it's believed that Georges began to unravel, with Summers writing, quote, specialists, it said, have attested 
that she is on occasion not a responsible agent, but this state is only intermittent and she unquestionably enjoys long periods of normal lucidity. She is a sick woman and should be treated as such. To confine her to an asylum can only result in exciting the frequency of any morbid crises. She will be reduced to sheer lunacy. It is a barbarous and most pitiable fate. And it is here that Georges disappears from the historical record at age 34. It's likely that Georges died in an asylum, though perhaps he was at some point released and lived a quiet life. We simply don't know either way. We also don't know what became of his daughter, Irene. Summers concludes that though he believes Georges' stigmata was faked, he is still certain that his cure by Notre Dame de Hall was real. He further concludes, dramatically, that Georges' stigmata may have even been demonic in origin, but that is par for the course in Montague Summers' often outlandish writings. Still, we're left with some big questions. Was he discredited for taking money from his disciples? Or was he really disbelieved because of his insistence that he was a man? Were his breaks from lucidity a sign of psychosis? Or were they intercourse with angels and divine revelation, as he claimed? Whether Georges was a mystic or a madman, I'll leave up to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of One from the Vaults, the podcast that brings you all the dirt, gossip, and glamour from trans history. I'm your host, Morgan M. Page. One from the Vaults is written, recorded, and produced by me, Morgan M. Page. It is recorded in Montreal, Quebec, on the traditional territories of the Algonquin and Haudenosaunee. Check out the show notes for all the sources I used. If you like the show, please subscribe on SoundCloud, iTunes, or Google Play. And if you'd like to contribute to the making of future episodes, please consider donating to my Patreon at patreon.com slash OFTV. Patrons who donate $5 or more per month get access to monthly bonus mini episodes covering shorter and often weirder stories than are covered on the main show. You can also tweet at me at Morgan M. Page on Twitter. Join us next time for another story from our trans ancestors. Good night.